have questions about your health? A simple pill won't fix your problems. And there's so many points and opinions on the internet that a web search just leaves you more confused. So why not take the time and listen to those who know best? Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. Truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective right here and now. So let's bring it to your host, Dr. Jonathan Carp, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences. 1077 The Bronx, 1077 TheBronx.com, proudly nominated for a National Association of Broadcasters 2019 Marconi Award for Best College Radio Station. We are um, today not really live that we usually are. We are practicing social distancing at Ryder University. Um, but still, I'd like to welcome you to Health 411. I'm Dr. Jonathan Karp. And we are here remotely as part of Health 411, where we're going to give you truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective. Health 411 is sponsored by the Ryder University Health Studies Institute. And part of our message and part of our goal is to transmit truth in healthcare. Now, one of the reasons that we are remote and across our country and other countries that's going on right now are things related to the coronavirus. And so I am here today with Antonia Conti, um, our producer, and our guest, Dr. Jim Riggs, a professor of biology, behavioral neuroscience, and health science at Ryder University. And we are here for our second installment talking about the coronavirus and COVID-19. Welcome you both, and we're doing this by video now for the, the first time on Health 411. And so we'd like to welcome back Dr. Riggs for a second segment. Thanks. And, and so, we're going to assume that the people who are listening to this podcast may not have listened to our previous podcast that one can listen to on the Health 411 podcast downloads. And so in a general sort of sense, uh, can you update us a little bit on what you said, uh, Jim, before we move ahead? I think we started with talking about what a virus is. I would imagine that everybody now has a clue what a virus is based on what's happening. Quickly, these are basically little replication machines. All they want to do is get inside of cells and make copies of themselves. And some are far more efficient at it than others. And when some viruses get inside of us, they cause a lot of problems. And it's clearly what we're seeing with uh, COVID-19. And one of the things we didn't mention last time is these things are coronaviruses. Why is it called a coronavirus? It has nothing to do with the beer. That is absolutely correct. So great question. Essentially, corona means crown, like a crown on a king. And essentially, if you look with an electron microscope at the virus, it looks like a crown that you find on the head of a king. And essentially, those, the crowny spikes, if you will, are actually the spike proteins that we need to target for a vaccine. And that's actually underway from what my understanding is. Well, it's one of the things we're gonna develop as we talk, but what is unique about this particular virus? Because the coronavirus is a family of viruses, but we haven't had in the United States a worldwide epidemic or pandemic it's now being called. What's unique about this specific one? I think what's particularly unique about this is that it's highly transmissible. And you're, you're seeing this, and it's also insidious, so it's sneaky, essentially. What that means is people can get it, be exposed to it, actively shed it, transfer it to others, and not have any overt symptoms. And that works to the virus's advantage because it's basically moving from host to host and expanding itself. And then in a fraction of cases, uh, too high a fraction, you see people get sick, and in some cases, they get terribly sick. And so we're learning quite a bit about the individuals that are most susceptible to the infection as we're gathering more and more data. And there's getting more and more information coming out of China and what other countries are experiencing with the virus. So it's highly transmissible. I would say that's the key thing. And how is it transmissible? 
it's basically mostly direct contact. You can, you know, sneeze this out. Uh, what I wanted to get clear relative to what we talked about last time is I kind of gave the impression that the virus is very fragile. Uh, there's a really interesting recent report that came out in the New England Journal of Medicine that this thing can actually persist for up to three hours in aerosols. So in other words, it can draft around as droplets in air and it can be breathed in. But more importantly, it can actually be transmitted via what are called fomites or inanimate vectors, things that are not alive. So door handles, subway railings, things like that. This same article in the New England Journal of Medicine showed that it can persist for up to 72 hours on stainless steel or plastic. It's less durable on things like cardboard and paper, but it can persist for quite some time on surfaces. And this is a rapid report that came out. Actually, uh, one of the investigators is at Princeton who showed this. And I think that's an important contribution because this, this might explain how it can persist and hang out for a while. So yes, it has a lipid envelope. It has a lipid fatty coat around it that makes it somewhat fragile. But this thing can persist and hang out on surfaces. And one of the things that we're being asked to do as people in society is to wash our hands all the time, not just wipe down doorknobs. I want to bring that up, but is that lipid coat you mentioned one of the reasons that uh, washing your hands is sort of like, I'm asking you about the science of soap. Yeah, very good question. Again, so this lipid envelope gets broken down or disrupted with soap, with extensive use of hand soap and hand washing that breaks it down. What a lot of people use with these hand sanitizers is the alcohol. The alcohol in there actually breaks apart this lipid shroud, if you will, fatty shroud that's around the virus itself. But you have to have a basal level of 60% alcohol in that compound, whatever that solution is that you're using to wipe your hands. So I can't, I don't know Purell's composition. There's a lot of stuff being sold online. There's a lot of trickery, chicanery that's going on. And people have to be aware of these sorts of things. But yeah, hand washing is, it's fundamentally, it's the easiest thing you can do. I think we talked about this before, you know, get your hands wet, get them real soapy, go up your wrist a little bit, sing happy birthday to yourself or whomever twice, nice and slow, rinse your hands, paper towel. And some people recommend, you say sing happy birthday, but I've heard a number of people throw out, you know, wash for 20 seconds. Now, is there anything magic about that 20 seconds or what's the, the point behind that? The longer you wash, the higher the probability that you're going to disrupt that lipid. And you're going to get into the nooks and crannies and all the, the bits and pieces of, of your skin. That is correct. Where this thing, this thing could hide. And, the, um, and again, the point about washing the hands, and this is to be, people have heard this a lot, I'm sure. The average person touches their face 20 to 25 times per hour. They're sticking their fingers in and around their mouth like three to five times per hour. That's the average person. You know, all of us are going to be spending more time on our laptops and doing these remote sorts of things. Hopefully, obviously, in isolation where you're not coming into contact with other individuals. But that's really how this thing gains access to individuals is you touch some surface, you pick up the virus, you then scratch an eye, you touch a nose, something like that. And that once that virus has a, what we call a portal of entry, it sets up shop and it starts replicating. And I saw an interesting report where they were looking at people who are wearing surgical masks, the face masks. And um, that's something we could talk about because a lot of people don't wear them properly or blend gloves, <laughs> but then they stick their hands like underneath the mask, like to scratch themselves or they do these things. The one thing I did see one anecdotal report that said when they studied people with the face masks, what they actually did was they touched their face less than, they, than people do sort of normally without even thinking about it. Well, that's interesting. I didn't realize that. I would say you, you don't need the face mask most of the time. The people that should have the face masks are the healthcare providers and the people that are actually sick and shedding, potentially shedding virus. The great majority of people don't need masks. 
and there's a shortage of the high quality masks. There's a desperate yeah. shortage in the, in the front lines for the healthcare providers. And you mentioned both the masks and the goos that people rub on their hands. There's a lot of internet, I'll put the word out there, crap out there. People trying to make a buck for Correct. selling this stuff. And we we're joking about it before we started this podcast about you know vodka and Vodka just does not have high enough alcohol content. What's like a threshold that you would need to disrupt the virus? That's well, the studies suggest that you need to be around 60% as a basal level of alcohol. So 60% composition and whatever solution is that you're slathering on yourself. But again, the great majority of people have soap. Focus on that first and foremost. Save your alcohol for other. <laughs> right. And a soap is certainly the least expensive, most prevalent. And there has not been a rush on like, traditional hand soap or kinds of things. Um, and it's, honestly, it doesn't have to be hand soap. You can use your dish soap. Yep. You know? Anything that makes bubbles. And I remember when we, you know, at some point in my life and I was learning about the science of soap, I had this image of the molecules in the soap surrounding these, you that know, is correct. The different, different molecules. And when you rinse your hands, bubbles are good. You want bubbles? Bubbles are, are our friends. <laughs> And another interesting thing that, that I want to bring up, because sometimes people say the word COVID-19, and sometimes they say the word, you know, SARS coronavirus too. What's the difference between those things? They're the same thing. It's the same critter. It's whatever floats your boat. I think when we say coronavirus, COVID-19, SARS coronavirus number two, what have you, we're all talking about the same beast, essentially. Mm -hmm. SARS, SARS or MERS, as individual acronyms, those are historic entities in the same family, essentially, of viruses, but they're relatives, so to speak. There are four other coronaviruses that are common cold viruses that I think we mentioned before. Mm -hmm. of us have been exposed to, to them, not all of us. Yeah, hopefully not. And um, just in my own head, when I hear those things, um, I've envisioned it sort of like talking about HIV or AIDS, where HIV would be the SARS coronavirus 2 part, and the disease it causes was AIDS, and that's sort of the COVID-19. Um, I've sort of looked at it sort of that way. Is that an un is that productive way to sort of view things? HIV infection leads to AIDS. Correct. So human immunodeficiency virus eventually plummets your CD4 helper T-cell count, and then you have acquired immune deficiency syndrome. But HIV had a variety of different names before it became known as HIV. There's an interesting history to that. But everybody got on the same page that we have to call this thing HIV. And I think relatively quickly, people centered on COVID-19. Okay. And 19 refers to the year 2019. And so you, and that's something to bring up, too. When people talk about you know, people getting sick and dying from this, um, an HIV infection, it stays in you for years, decades before it can kill you. But the COVID-19 virus, it seems to have an effect. And if it's going to kill you, it doesn't take years to happen. So it, it works. It's, this virus is working differently than that other virus. That is correct. It's much more of an acute infection. Well, it's an infection that can lead to death in certain individuals with certain susceptibilities, what we call comorbidities. And you can be subclinical for eight to 10 years and shedding virus at HIV. That's not happening with this virus. You can be subclinical for days to weeks shedding the virus, and then you can get full-blown illness. Some people recover. Some people go through a period where they look good, then they collapse. And that's really 
mystery. They're trying to understand that. But both these viruses are RNA viruses, but they're having very different effects on people. Why, why is that? That's a great question. HIV has taken out T cells, and it's taking out a very specific subset of T cells. It also actually infects macrophages, which is a, an eating cell. A phagocyte is a cell that eats other debris and garbage in the immune system. So HIV targets those types of cells. This virus, the coronavirus, actually targets respiratory epithelial cells. This is a very different lining. This is a very important area in your body in terms of you know all portions of your body need oxygen in this delivery system. So in those individuals that get full-blown illness and go into this acute respiratory distress, this virus is creating pandemonium in there. The immune system is like hyperactivated. Is there a, a reason to think that because it's primarily attacking these cells in the lungs, that, I mean, the re my guess is the receptors that these cells have are not unique to cells in the lungs. They're probably other places in the body too. Does that, does that in inform a scientist of like potential mechanisms of action, potential treatments, or something moving forward? I think the key thing is we understand the receptor, the doorknob essentially that the virus uses to get inside of the cell, it's ACE2. And that's the target. What's really fascinating about this virus relative to SARS, it's, it's relative, it's neighbor virus, if you will, is studies, structural studies have just come out to show this thing has a tenfold higher affinity for the ACE2 receptor. So when it grabs a hold of that receptor, it's going in. And that spike protein, interestingly, three different antibodies that recognize that SARS spike protein, they don't recognize the COVID-19 spike protein. So there might be something interesting to learn about the specificity of the antibodies. What, in terms of the contours, what are they seeing on that molecule on some individuals and not in others that plays a role? So we need to talk about vaccine eventually. That'd be a great, uh, you, great way to start the next thing. We'll be right back with more healthcare talk after these brief underwriting announcements. You're listening to Health 411 on 107.7 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. A dose of knowledge a day keeps a doctor away. Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. And back with your daily dosage is Dr. Jonathan Carr, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences. 1077 The Bronx, 1077 The We're usually live from Killarney's Public House Studios, but we are practicing social distancing in terms of good science and good health care right now. But you're listening to Health 411. I'm Dr. Jonathan Karp, joined today by Antonia Conti, our producer, and Jim Riggs, a professor of biology at Ryder University. Dr. Riggs' expertise is in immunology and microbiology, and we are talking about COVID-19 and our current situation here. We're focusing sort of on the, the science behind the coronavirus. And at the end of the last segment, Dr. Riggs was um, starting to talk about or lead into a discussion of the kinds of things that science is going to lead us to. And in a general idea, I want to ask him about, there's things about prevention, which is sort of the washing the hands kind of stuff we were talking about, versus cures and treatments. And when one talks about things like vaccines and stuff, so what's the difference here between prevention and treatments, and what do you see the process of science helping us with? Well, clearly prevention is about right now social distancing. That's all we have, essentially, is, is keeping people apart from each other. And obviously, I would emphasize, particularly paying attention to the most susceptible, those at risk the most would be the elderly. Um, so that's really all we have. Prevention basically comes down to prophylaxis, which is a vaccine. If you can build up an immune response to this organism before you are exposed to it, 
then your immune system, when it's exposed to it, will actually address it quickly and never let it establish an infection inside cells and have the expansion of the infection. So that's the ideal. Treatment, which is the third part, I think, of your question, is you have the disease, what can we do to reduce viral spread, reduce viral expansion in the host? So there's speculation out there, and I want to emphasize that it's speculation, that chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine is going to work. This is not a new drug. This has been around for a long time. That is correct. It's actually historically an anti-malarial drug. It basically comes from the bark of the quinine. It's quinine, essentially. Mm -hmm. It comes from the bark of the cinchona tree. The Jesuit priests in the 1500s recognized the Indians used to chew the bark off the tree, and it quelled fever in these indigenous peoples. So they learned that if you made a tea from the bark of this tree, you'd actually reduce fevers. The British noticed this also in India to started drinking gin and tonics, quinine water and tonic water because they were in malarial endemic areas. And it's a very interesting history. I guess I could blather on about that for a while. But essentially, the, when, when the Chinese folks had this ex explosive series of cases in Wuhan, they were throwing everything they could at these patients to try and save them. And somebody did some experiments, not experiments, but they, they, they gave some folks some, high, some chloroquine and they made the assumption that these people got better. It was never any kind of a trial. So it's, you know, I heard Anthony Fauci say this actually directly. It's anecdotal. This is, this is not how science is done. Well, who, who is Anthony Fauci? So Anthony Fauci is the immunology guru, essentially. He's the head of the NIAID. So the National Institutes of Health have these different divisions. I'm wearing my NIH hat today. The NIAID is the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. He's the director or the head of that part of the NIH has about a five, six billion dollar per year budget. And he's one of the guys who's sometimes up on the stage with President Trump. Correct. He's very outspoken, but everything that guy says is gospel truth. He's, he's a very, you know, highly trained and respected immunologist with years of experience in HIV AIDS, SARS, MERS, coronavirus. He's a guy to listen to. And essentially the whole idea of chloroquine being a solution needs trials, it needs testing. And essentially, I heard today a patient died, some, some husband and wife went and started yes, thinking, the same thing. Like, you hear this, they, they, yeah. they pulled the stuff off the shelf that they were using to clean their aquarium and they died. It can lead to cardiovascular issues in high, do you need high doses, the in vitro, the in, in, in glass, in the Petri dish studies, show you need really high doses of this stuff. So these people hammered a bunch of it down and it can cause cardiovascular issues. Cardiovascular issues are a risk factor for this infection. <laughs> so, it, so even though it, this drug is, is useful in treating malaria, malaria is a very, very different kind of infection. That's a parasitic infection, is it not? And COVID-19 is, like you mentioned in the previous segment, is an RNA virus. Correct. So what, what, what kind of connections can we draw between the mechanism of action, how this drug potentially might work, right. and how we're known to work in these kinds of things? Great question. So, so essentially, when I, if I get too so biological here, Antonia will jump in and clarify things for us. Right? Sure. <laughs> so, what, <laughs> so when you treat cells with chloroquine, when cells are exposed to chloroquine, it diffuses inside the cells. And what it does is, is it changes the pH, the acid-base content, inside endosomes or lysosomes. So basically it takes these acidic compartments and it neutralizes them. 
it dials so down. If these lysosomes are subcellular compartments inside a cell, and what happens in lysosomes? Why are they important? So basically what lysos these endosomes are doing is they're, they're trafficking some molecules around. Mm -hmm. Molecules are being processed. And so in, if you change the pH of these internal structures, it changes the shape of molecules. It changes their ability to get to the surface of the cell. So this could, this could impact how you um, respond to the, to the virus. It actually could shape, change the shape of the virus or it can impact the ability of the virus to, to complete its replication cycle and put parts of it out on the cell surface. It's also anti-inflammatory, and this is what it's been used for. Actually, it's been shown to be effective for a couple of autoimmune diseases, rheumatoid arthritis and lupus. And those are both autoimmune diseases in which inflammation is tempered for these patients when they take chloroquine. Now there's concerns that those people are not going to get the meds that they need to treat their chronic, you know, lifelong inflammatory diseases because everybody's rushing out. Right. And you bring up an important thing is that even though this is a medicine that's been around for a long time um, and it does have some uses, it's sort of the, is it wrong to think of it as sort of a equivalent of an internet rumor? where people are going out and hoarding this, like this husband and wife team that you mentioned before, where the doses aren't known, the, the, the amount of time you have to take it isn't known. It's, you know, <laughs> they, they bought this stuff from like a pet store. <laughs> that, I think that's part of the issue is the misinformation. You want to have hope, right? You want to have hope, believe that we can do something. If my kid is sudden, suddenly suffering from acute respiratory distress, I'm going to try that. I'm going to try anything that potentially might be effective. I understand that, but for the, and based on human behavior and based on how science operates, um, we need to be very clear on the message that we're giving and what we're doing when we're approaching these yeah, things. Yeah, absolutely. And, and people, I mean, that's an important thing and we want to talk about and on my list of things is sort of the scientific process about how science learns and how it's going to inform um, how we approach, you know, the COVID-19 virus. But that's, you bring up a very, very important thing. It's, uh, you just don't know. You were talking about going out and having a gin and tonic also. That certainly, we know a lot about gin. There's a little bit of quinine in it. And Social distancing with a gin and tonic. Yeah, there you go. Uh, I have a, a question about like social distancing and kind of prevention. So I've noticed personally that a lot of the times when I go on social media, I see all young people out on the beaches and out with their friends still. And it's kind of like they're, I don't want to say they don't care because I'm sure they do, but it's kind of like, oh, we're not going to get that virus. We'll be fine. We're not dying from it. That's, would you say that that's part of the problem as well? I, I think, think we're going to find out. Everything. I think South Florida is going to be, we're going to find out soon. How, how much of an issue that is. So, you know, people go to get the aggregate, the aggregate, young people tend to be, um, have more durable immunity. You know, the death rate is not as high in that cohort, but you might go home and visit uh, an older aunt or uncle who's, you know, has compromised immunity or not ideal respiration. We need to understand additional comorbidities, not just being old people. Obesity is showing out turning out to be a comorbidity. People with type 2 diabetes, um, you know, one-third of the population in this country is obese. You can't quarantine or isolate one-third of the population. And it's not just in New York City or San Francisco, L.A., you know, major population centers. You're, you're going to have a variety of factors of what we're learning as comorbidities. 
where you can't socially isolate all these people. And those people are going to come into contact with young people that might have been engaged in practices that led to acquisition of the infection. They're not actively sick. They don't understand that they could actually transmit it to someone that they care about. And then, bang, the virus has got a new host. There's so many important things that you're bringing up here. I mean, on one level, that's why they draft, you know, 18, 19-year-olds into the Army, because they're, they feel like they're invincible. You know, they're, they're not going to draft old folks like me, and like, whoa, 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 I'm not doing that. <laughs> but they, these people do feel invincible, but then they, like you're saying, they become vectors out into the community. And um, that is something that just promotes viral spread. And, and, and that's not a good thing. And we want to we want to prevent that, which brings up another thing that I, I wanted to address in terms of the idea that this is a very infectious agent. But people talk about flattening the curve in terms of viral spread. What does that mean? So what you're trying to do with flattening the curve is reduce transmission so that the hospitals can handle the volume of patients that are coming at them. New York City right now is in a crisis. They're, they're, I mean, Como is worth listening to and see what they're doing, what he's trying to accomplish in that city. They're at the eye of the storm right now. The wave is washing up on shore. The tsunami's hitting the shore, if you will, there. So what we want to do is reduce the volume of patients that are getting sick and are landing in the medical centers. So by social isolation, social distancing, you, re you reduce the volume of patients that are getting sick and exposed. And in population centers or people on beaches and things like that, that's where you get that aggregation of people. You get this infection rate. This thing incubates for a while, and then you see it spike. And the question is, when will that curve turn? Mm. And the earlier that curve, the turn of the curve, um, clearly the better. This, the genie's out of the bottle. Well, we can't do what was done in China or South Korea we're way behind on the learning curve with respect to those things. Uh, this is not a command control society either. So people have been engaging in activities that have led to transmission and this thing is incubating and it will continue to infect and it spread when people are interacting with each other. That's a great way to end this segment. We'll be right back with more healthcare talk after these brief underwriting announcements. You're listening to Health 411 on 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. From healthcare to the environment around us and everything in between, Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. Dr. Jonathan Carr, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences, is here expanding your knowledge and perspective. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com. We are usually live from Killarney's Public House Studios on Health 411, but today we are remote broadcasting and recording from our homes with Antonia Conti, our producer, and Jim Riggs, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience and Health Sciences at Ryder University. And we are talking about the coronavirus too, COVID-19, and we're sort of talking about the science behind the coronavirus. And part of this science, we hear things about, you know, vaccines might take a while. We were hearing things about home testing kits. Can you tell us a little bit what that's all about, Dr. Ritz? Yeah, so let's get the vaccine situation straight as efficiently as possible here. So, so I reached out to a former Ryder student. His name is Justin. What's Justin's last name? I just, had a, I just threw a blank on Justin's last name. It'll come to me eventually. <laughs> Senior moment. Um, so Justin is on the West Coast. He's at Fred Hutch Cancer Center in um, Seattle. That's a hot spot, right? They were out in the front of, of this epidemic, essentially a pandemic, when it hit the, hit the Western shores of the U.S. 
He's a B cell engineer. So I said, hey, Justin, what can you tell me with what's going on with respect to vaccines? He says, absolutely. What's focusing is going to be on these spike proteins. We want to really pay attention to those. There have been successful vaccines generated in the past for these types of molecules. Um, we need to go through testing phases with that. The key thing that people need to understand, and you know, is you don't make vaccines in a couple of days, and here's why. You got to do all kinds of preclinical testing in animals before you move into humans. You got to make sure it's safe, efficacious. We, we joked and talked before about how you want to make sure you get this right because of all the anti-vax people that don't you know, believe we should be using vaccines. Sometimes vaccines increase infections. Mm-hmm. This happens with dengue. You, you can make an immune response, make an antibody response, and increases the, the danger of the infection. We need to get this right, and it's going to take time. So when Fauci tells you 12 to 18 months, he under-promises and over-delivers. That's how you do effective messaging. You under-promise, you over-deliver. If he tells you 12 to 18 months, we might be able to get this done in 10 months. Okay. Yeah. But don't tell people there's going to be a vaccine tomorrow. One of the issues you're bringing up, you talked about the coronavirus. It's called the coronavirus because it has these sort of spikes on like a crown. And there are multiple proteins that make up those spikes. And right. vaccines are sometimes very, very specific for one of them. Great question. And, and, right? And so yeah. how, how do they know? Correct. Absolutely. You got to find the immunodominant epitope if you want to use the bladder of immunology. You got to find the bump, the bump right. on that molecule that is the right one. And sometimes, sometimes you guess wrong. And that so is correct. You, you go through this whole process, time, money, reagents, and Absolutely. you guess wrong. You don't want to make things worse, but you want to get it right. Good point. It's a real quick aspect of that. How a molecule folds matters. So when that molecule's sitting in the virus capsule, the outer surface of the virus, it might sit in a particular fashion. If we genetically engineer and clone that molecule in the absence of its association with the capsid, it might change its shape. It, it, it doesn't look the same to the immune system. You vaccinate with it. You say, why does this give me durable protective immunity? It's because it doesn't have its native shape. So structural biology has to be done. We have to understand you know, exactly what we're going after, what the target should be. Now, just real quick, sometimes you want the other guys in the immune system, you want the T cells to fight the virus. The T cells can actually kill virus-infected cells. So essentially what you want to do is you want to target, use a smart, intelligent bombing to kill the cells that are infected. You don't want to do that in the lung. You don't want to be killing. You want to prevent this thing from getting into cells. So you need to target the spike proteins that basically block the hand from grabbing the doorknob to get inside the cell or inside the room, metaphorically. And you want to prevent fusion. Because once the virus binds, it'll fuse and it'll melt itself into the, to the host cell. So either one of those types of strategies with the blocking antibody is going to help reduce. Well, just conceptually, if I, was, if I was back in grad school and I can imagine the process about how viruses work and there, I can imagine multiple ways of approaching the problem. One way is to try to approach, to develop a, a method of blocking the virus from getting into the cells. That, that's one mechanism, but there, there are, it's not the only way. You might think of like the chloroquinone. That that's changing what the virus is doing once it's inside a cell. That is true. Which is, what, which is another potential therapeutic approach. Right. And, and and there's also I can imagine when that virus gets in there, the cells have changed. And you're bringing this up too with you know T cells and you know NK cells, natural killer cells. When a cell 
the, our bodies already have mechanisms to recognize cells that are no longer just doing what they're supposed to do, like cancer cells. And we have an end, you know, natural killer cell response against those cells. So there are multiple ways that one could approach. Um, tell me if I'm wrong. So no, if I'm, thinking, I'm thinking like a scientist. There's, there's not just one way of, a, of a, addressing the biology of this. And vaccinologists have to think about the target tissue and what, what yep. you want your strategy for that. And again, this takes time. Right now, fortunately, we have precedents with other vaccines with similar family members, and we know that, you know, as you age, believe it or not, you you develop a history of exposure to flu virus, so you're less susceptible to flu. And healthy, aerobically fit, young to middle-aged people, not people with cardiovascular issues or low respiratory quality, a history of exposure to viruses basically builds durable immunity in, in a healthy individual. So. So, but, so the, but, but you did mention some of the most susceptible people to this, you know, COVID nineteen are are the elderly. So that that only goes on to a point. At some point, older people have elderly a male less response. Elderly males that smoke. Males have less antibody production, less humoral immunity. Their their immune response and antibody production is not as good as women. This is this is true. Age thirty on up, all the cases that, that have been that I've looked at so far, men have a two times women death rate for this infection and the gender-based aspect of that is there's better immunity in women because they're really they're more important in the, in the reproductive role <laughs> that's at least what evolution tells us right yeah. um i forget what i was talking justin taylor now it comes to me justin taylor's the guy i was talking about earlier so that's a senior moment now be, I forget what I was talking it's about. your reduced antibody response tobacco <laughs> use tobacco <laughs> use is an issue as well and recent evidence that vaping is a risk factor yes <laughs> yeah, so it might be a matter of time because most of the vapors are the younger people, right? As more of them start getting exposed where their immune system might normally handle this thing and just have very, you know, mild symptoms, which is something like 80% of the people, that might change. Hypertension. People with uncontrolled hypertension yeah. are at yeah. risk for this as well. Yeah, which, which is sort of interesting because that's one of the things that the renin angiotensin system is involved in. That's where the the, the ACE2 enzyme is involved. Which it's with eating, drinking, hypertension, blood pressure. It's that same system. That and ACE2 again for folks, that's where the virus uses to get into cells. ACE2 is a molecule on the surface of our cells that the virus uses to gain an entry. H2 receptor. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. Testing. So, so, so the, the, that's sort of a therapeutic approach. The other thing that we wanted to talk about in this segment was these home testing kits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, the World Health Director is saying test, 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 test. You know, everybody's that does well is doing a lot of testing, mm -hmm. and so right away, capitalism. There's a rush to market home testing kits. Okay. So three or four companies got out in front of the FDA and they started marketing home testing kits. Now try to imagine different people with different kits, self swab sampling. Antonia, I know we're coming up to a break here, so we won't, we won't get too detailed, but Antonia can tell you when you take microbiology lab with rigs, students do pharyngeal swabs on each other because you can't do it on yourself. Tell us, yeah. tell me, Antonia, tell us. Yeah, it's, it's definitely, almost impossible to do like a throat culture swab on yourself and it's it's kind of hard too to do it on someone else but i can't even imagine to try to do it on yourself but i've seen people like videos of people going to the testing center and having them stick i guess a swab all the way up and some people it's like oh it's touching my brain but 
<laughs> I couldn't even imagine people doing that at home. I've never heard of the at-home testing kits before, so it's a hey. shock for me. Unfortunately, we're running up against an under, underwriting break. It's a great place to launch in our next segment. We'll be right back with more healthcare talk about the coronavirus after these brief underwriting announcements. You're listening to Health 411 on 107.7 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. A dose of knowledge a day keeps a doctor away. Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. And back with your daily dosage is Dr. Jonathan Carr, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences. 1077 the Bronx, 1077thebronc.com. We are recording remotely, even though we're usually live from Killarney's Public House Studios. We are practicing social distancing in this unprecedented uh, systemic societal infection with the SARS coronavirus 2, which may lead to COVID-19. At the end of the last segment, Antonia was telling us a little bit about her experience as a college student in a microbiology lab performing diagnostic tests appropriately. So what does that say about these these home testing kits that our people are trying to market to us? To me, I don't know. It just doesn't sound like a good idea. I mean, especially... Do you think people have the skill to do it appropriately so your results are actually going to be believable? No. And I I personally wouldn't even do it. And I've been trained in a microbiology class, and I hopefully plan on going to medical school. I would not do one for myself. I would much more prefer a medical professional to do it rather than doing it myself or having a family member do it or whatever. Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm going to pick on you a little bit because I, I know you've taken a, a biostats course. There are two different ways to test positive. You can have a mm-hmm. true positive test and a false positive test. There right. are two ways to test negative. You can mm-hmm. have a true negative, oh, yeah. false negative. And it, you know, if things are being rushed through the FDA, just a kit, like, does it mean you have to test and retest or, you know? And that can get expensive. You know what to believe. Yep. So let, let's get a couple things on this. First of all, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is behind this work. They're going to get that right. Those folks do things really well. Mm -hmm. But there are three companies that got out in front of the FDA. Uh, One's called NURCS, N-U-R-X. Another one's called Carbon Health, like the radioactive carbon, Carbon Health. And then the other one's called Forward. Um, I just want to, you know, bring up like Theranos. You know, there, there are companies that put things out there that may not necessarily work. So these guys got in front of the FDA before the FDA could see what they were doing. They're selling stuff online. They couldn't meet capacity. Listen to the three different companies. The NERX kit uses oral swabs of the throat. The Forward kit uses inner cheek swabs. And the Carbon Health Kit uses saliva. Three different target zones. And Antony emphasized to you what she saw in the swabs that they're testing. Nasopharyngeal means they're going up and and deep. It's uncomfortable. None of those three target sites are nasopharyngeal for these companies. They're all three different things. Now, the false negative aspect, think of how much of a train wreck that can be. You do your swab, your cheek sample, your saliva sample, whatever. You mail it. You know, you're negative. You go out. You go visit grandma. You're positive. Mm -hmm. So they got to get this right. You can't put stuff on the market. The FDA has got to get you know, testing. Now, the Gates Foundation is going to get this straight. And let's be honest, 
we need as much testing as possible, but we need high quality testing. And if you can come up with a home dipstick test or something along the lines of a home pregnancy test, of course, that has to be pretty bulletproof. The EPT test is an example that people might understand. We can get it right. It's just going to take a lot of work to get there. And again, it can't happen overnight the way things are flying out the door. And I don't know about these test kits, but my guess would be the right way to find out if you're positive is some like RT-PCR. Is that how these kits work where you mail something in? Yeah, my assumption is... What is RT? What does that mean? So this virus has an RNA genome. Okay, so it has nucleic acid in it and is something called ribonucleic acid. Our genomes are double-stranded DNA, double-stranded nucleic acid genome. What that assay does is it looks for RNA strands in a biological sample. So what you do is you try to amplify. You want to find out fish for that RNA strand with a matching strand in this case, it would be the viral RNA. The viral RNA. So is there viral RNA in saliva, cheek smear cells, so on and so forth? I'm sure if a patient is full-blown, really, really sick, to the point where they probably couldn't jam a swab in there, they're going to be shedding virus in all those different bodily sources. But, you know, the paranoid person who's not, you know, just got a little fever or something, and they go and test themselves, they're going to turn up negative, and they're going to be testing themselves early. And, you know, this assay is extremely right. sensitive, but you got to have virus there in order to test positive. Right, and there's some skill involved with doing the, the assay. This is not like an ELISA, the, the, the conventional antibody assay that we have our students mm -hmm. do on a regular basis in our teaching labs, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And just a note about testing, uh, the really interesting thing came out about New York City. So testing is ramped up in the United States. We're finally getting up to speed to doing it. Generally, when you look at across the board, when people come in and they have some kind of a symptom, they get tested, you have an 8% positive rate. New York City is 28% positive right now. Wow. That's just to kind of reinforce wow. to you where they're at. Now, sure, you know, high density, a lot of people are getting tested and they're, they're really full blown. And the sick people are tested they're first. They're rationing tests that they have on the people that are absolutely the sickest. Mm -hmm. But 28% is downright scary, right? Yeah. yeah I, and I got to say, one of the most important things I wanted to emphasize you got to think about those people that are in the trenches that are dealing with these people. They are at risk. The people that do the intubation, right? Mm -hmm. The healthcare e workers. The ENT people, the ear, nose, and throat specialists. The opt optical people, you're getting close to people, you're touching, you're all around their face. These are the people that are getting sick, and you're hearing mental anguish and stress. There are videos online, there's audio of Italy and physicians that are just, it's like wartime for them. There's video online in uh, Wuhan where these physicians, they're screaming. The volume of patients that are coming in, the caskets are lining up in the hallway. They can't deal with the, the surge of patients that are right. coming into And by them. flattening the curve that we talked about earlier, is sort of prolonging that out not to overwhelm our capacity. That's the point behind it. Absolutely. Even though the same number of people are going to get critically ill, that same you know, 18% are going to need hospitalization. If we can spread that out, it won't overwhelm the healthcare system. Absolutely. Uh, and I think that's, that's the goal of it. I also want to ask you about, in our previous podcast, we talked a little bit, we spent some time on it, and I don't want to relive it all, the natural history of this specific virus, which bats to another vector to humans. And there's an animal component to that. And so I don't hear a lot of talk about is that animals can be vectors to people. How does that, in terms of the biology of viruses, affect people with pets? And I'm not talking about fish, I'm talking about a lot of people sleep with their dogs or they rub noses with their dogs and things like that. Interestingly, in domestication of that, things like cats and dogs, generally those diseases aren't transmissible to us and vice versa. If you look at things like if you own a primate 
you have to worry about herpes virus. <laughs> you would probably know that as well as That's I would. True, absolutely. So herpes viruses have existed in our shared ancestors essentially some six million years ago. Herpes viruses, they're a very interesting family of viruses that have co-evolved with us. They have all kinds of tools that they bring to infections and things like that. I wouldn't worry too much about your, your pets at home, particularly your fish or your tarantula spider. <laughs> but I, could I argue, if a bat can transfer the virus to a pandolin or some other animal that people can yeah. get it, could, I get, could my dog get sick and then be a reservoir of it and transmit it to my family members? My understanding is that pets, cats, dogs, do not acquire the infection. They don't, and so they couldn't. Um, now, I'm sure there could be a case where someone's really shedding virus, the dog looks that person's face and then looks at kid's face and then you get transmission. Certainly something like that might happen. But I just don't see these viruses hanging out on our pets. And so people uh, should, right now, is it fair to say that there's no science behind the idea that people's dogs and cats are gonna be reservoirs of this virus for humans? Trust me, trust me, you would have heard that by now. I would, I would guarantee that that would have been out front and center. And I mean, just to back to the, what we talked about before in the prior segment, not today, but the prior show, it's pretty clear that this came out of a bat through a pangolin, which is basically a spiny anteater. It's, a, it's an anteater with scales. And it was in an exotic meat market that just jumped into humans. And if you see that movie Contagion, I don't mean to give up, you know, here's a marketing pitch for that movie. They capture that at the essence of that in that movie quite well. Contagion really gives you a... An example of, you know, a dramatization of how things might have unfolded and led to what we're seeing and essentially now. And again, you know, we need field epidemiology. We need funding support for people to do that research. A couple hundred million dollars would have had that going on. I heard a report the other day that January 3rd, 2020, the scientists in China and the scientists in America, the CDC equivalent in China, they were communicating with each other. Folks, you got an issue coming at you. This is January 3rd. And the, intel the intelligence division picked it up next in terms of the scuttlebutt and the chatter that was going on over there. So we're talking a full month or more in advance of when we started to take action. There's a, there's a value to science, the scientific process. Scientists across national boundaries sharing information. Yes. Now, it's not all about you know, we have the smartest. Some, there are smart people in other countries, too, who know how to deal with these things. And that's part of the value of science. And I think that's another thing that, Jonathan, that we need to emphasize about science, because we're both salespersons for science. We both train a lot of students. And the maturation you have when you, when you leave your comfy little undergraduate nest and you go into graduate school or do a postdoc, you meet international people. And the yes. barriers drop down. And there's all this communication and collaboration and conversation and discussion. Yeah. So these folks are talking Looking at different things, coming at the same problems. Absolutely. It's fascinating. We're getting close to our end of time, but I want to ask you about, you, you mentioned chloroquine, which is one of the drugs that's out there. There's another drug that's being thrown around is remdesivir. Correct. That's another drug that's been around for a while that was developed for the treatment of Ebola. Correct. What do you think about that kind of? Gilead is a tremendous company on antiviral drug strategies. So they have had this compound. It didn't work for Ebola. It didn't work for a couple of other viruses. They so the idea is it, it doesn't always work. It had a lot of hope for Ebola. It didn't work. Now they want to try it with this one. So if you have an RNA genome, mm -hmm. okay, unlike our genome, which is DNA, if you have an RNA genome, you need an RNA polymerase. You need an enzyme to make cop copy that. We call it an RNA-dependent RNA polymerase. That compound, that drug, inhibits the RNA-dependent RNA polymerase. In general, features that are shared across a wide spectrum of RNA 
based genome viruses. They were using remdesivir in uh, Wuhan. They were throwing it at patients. And again, anecdotal evidence suggested that a couple patients they treated with, they popped up. There's a report in the New England Journal of Medicine, or yeah, NAGM, JM, that came up this past couple days. A young guy who was sick, one of the early test patients in Seattle, he was tremendously ill. They gave him this compound and he did better the next day. Then there was a second patient, I forget actually where. So two patients, terribly ill, they gave them remdesivir. Within 24 hours, they appear to be doing well. Again, that's anecdotal. You could talk for an hour about the psychosomatic effect, right? Yeah. Right? So I'm going to give you a sugar pill, a placebo, or I'm going to give you remdesivir. I'm going to give you a white M&M. And sometimes a patient, whether it's the white M&M or the sugar pill, responds. Absolutely. It, and it doesn't mean it's fake, it's real, but it doesn't mean what you're treating actually does it. Unfortunately, we are running out of time. Thank you, Dr. Riggs. This is 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com. We're usually live from Killarney's Public House Studios, but we're not there today. We are broadcasting remotely. Thank you for listening to Help 411. This program is part of the Rider University Health Studies Institute's efforts to bring people together to address issues associated with all aspects of healthcare. I hope today's program with Dr. Riggs has helped inform you about COVID-19, a little bit of the science behind the coronaviruses. I'd like to thank Dr. Riggs. Thank you so much for participating. Thank you, Antonia, for contributing your time at home to do this. If you have questions and or comments about this program or the Health Studies Institute at Rider, please email us at health411 at rider.edu. Thank you for taking the time to listen to your health with Health 411. Dr. Jonathan Karp is here from Rider University's Health Studies Institute every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information about the Health Studies Institute's programs, call 609-896-5093. That's 609-896-5093. Or find their webpage on rider.edu under academics and academic programs. Be sure to tune in every week to expand your knowledge and perspective. And don't forget to stay healthy.